Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Hypocrisy is a common feature on the world stage. The do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do approach to diplomacy has become a de facto doctrine used by powerful nations exercising their own self-interest while accusing other nations of exercising their own self-interest. Take, for example, last week's Russia-Africa summit held in St. Petersburg. Russian President Vladimir Putin met with the leaders of 17 African nations. At the last summit in 2019, 43 African nations were present. Nevertheless, Putin took the opportunity in this year's summit to present himself as a magnanimous leader easing the plight of nations in need. He offered up to 50,000 tons of grain exports to at least six African countries in the next several months, all for free. Our country is ready to make up for the Ukrainian grain, both on commercial basis and free of charge, to those countries in Africa that are in dire need, especially since we expect a record high harvest this year. That interpretation provided by Global News. Now, never mind the fact that Almost at the exact time Putin was declaring his largesse, Russia was also bombing grain silos and major grain exporting ports in Ukraine. Russian missiles destroyed 60,000 tons of grain in just one attack on the port city of Odessa. And never mind the fact that the Black Sea is infested with mines, making marine shipments of grain nearly impossible. And never mind that Russia also pulled out of a hard-won international agreement to allow the global export of Ukrainian grain. Never mind all that. Because Vladimir Putin said at the Russia-Africa summit that it's Western leaders sneering with hypocrisy. Putin said, quote, the Western countries are obstructing supplies of our grain and fertilizers, while also blaming us for the current crisis in the world food market, end quote. So how does that fall on the ears of the global south? Leaders in Africa, the Middle East, Asia and South America certainly see right through Russia's ruse. But they also don't think Putin is entirely wrong about Western hypocrisy either. Fact is, since the beginning of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, many nations of the global south have been unwilling to overtly condemn Russia. That lack of instantaneous alignment with the West has frustrated U.S. and European leaders. Here's German Federal Minister for Foreign Affairs Annalena Baerbock in February. Neutrality is not an option because then you are standing on the side of the aggressor. And this is a plea we are also giving next week to the world again. Please take a side, a side for peace, a side for Ukraine, a side for the humanitarian international law. And these times this means also delivering ammunition so Ukraine can defend ourselves. Well, in response, many leaders and analysts from the Global South have said, stop with the Western paternalism, stop with the lecturing, stop with the hypocrisy. Or as Filipino scholar Walden Bello put it on the show Democracy Now! last March. They really fear that uh, there is an agenda on the part of the U.S. that while this is an unjustified invasion, the U.S. has in fact provoked it 
uh, and is trying to take advantage of it at this point in time. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. An important question for this moment is, how should we best understand the Global South's perspectives on the war in Ukraine? What does it tell us about the nature of U.S. power and about how geopolitical influence is changing? Well, Comfort Arrow joins us today. She's the president and CEO of the International Crisis Group, a transnational independent organization committed to preventing and resolving deadly conflict. Dr. Arrow, welcome. Dr. Arrow, I should say, welcome to On Point. Thank you very much for having me. So, first of all, can you give us your read on how nations of the global south uh, interpreted or read Putin's announcement about that 50,000 tons of grain? Because, you know, I mentioned all the reasons why they might see it as a, as a hypocritical move by Putin. But what's your assessment? Um, I think it's still very much part of the efforts by Putin, by Russia, um, to show that he's on the side of the continent, um, the side of the global south countries, um, that he says he wants to sort of engage them to show that it's not because of him um, that they are facing food insecurity or any other sort of insecurity or ec economic shocks as a result of his own invasion into Ukraine. Um, but at the same time, I think um, the countries of the global south recognize and see the economic impact of the conflict on their countries. They see the inflation, they see the rise in food and oil prices. Um, I think they also recognize, um, to a certain degree, some of them, um, even if they still are hedging, they recognize um, that this war is having a, a quite a nev negative impact on them. Um, and they've some of them have chosen not to support Putin. I mean, I think he's largely also disappointed that he hasn't managed to sway all of the global south. Um, I think when you look at the facts on the ground, when you look at the vote from the General Assembly, for example, the two that happened last year, um, mm -hmm. the numbers don't necessarily stack up in Putin's favour, um, quite frankly. Mm. So you have written, though, and you just mentioned this word again, about um, nations of the global south hedging their bets. Can you explain what you mean? Well, I mean, it's it's long tradition, and I think it stems from the 1960s, 70s, 70s non-aligned movement when a you know the group of countries um, chose very carefully not to get caught up in the Cold War period. Now, I would contend, I wouldn't argue, or I resist the argument um, from some today that we are entering into a Cold War period. Certainly. Um, some, some lines have been drawn and certainly some countries have chosen to remain neutral. Um, some have decided to abstain, um, not to back any any one side um, in the invasion. So no, nobody's necessarily backing Russia, at the same time not necessarily backing um, China. I mean, I think this is in keeping with what we're seeing traditionally um, over, over the last few um, years and decades, that a number of those countries that are non-aligned, that a number of those countries now have choices. They can look east, they can look west, they can look towards India, they can look towards Russia. Um, so that type of international relations hasn't necessarily changed. I think what is very clear um, in this situation is that why either side, like some Western capitals and Russia, were trying to get 
allies on either side of of the of the invasion that certainly hasn't happened and they th these countries are to use the economic term um hedging are not wanting to be locked into any particular camp um, and waiting to see how things land um so i think that's that's what i mean by hedging and that's what i mean by neither side or number of countries wanting to sit this out and not sort of tie themselves to one particular side in this conflict I see. And so just to understand a little uh, more clearly, are you saying that the, the key difference now versus from the 60s and 70s is, as you said, countries now have more choices in terms of uh, relationships and um, perhaps even closer ties that they might form? In you looked at said looking east, west, etc. And that was that did not exist as clearly or powerfully before. No, I think, it, I mean, in the Cold War, I think there were definitive camps. You know, okay. you had those where the Soviet Union clearly banked, uh, backed certain countries. Um, and you saw there were a number of countries in um, the U.S. orbit. Um, but this time round, you know, understanding, I think, I think we need to understand where a number of countries in the so-called global south sit now, um, more mature, not getting caught up in ideological battlegrounds and having a little bit more confidence. And certainly since the invasion by Russia, having a lot more confidence to assert their own positions um, economically, politically, as to what they want to do and how to define their own foreign and national security interests going forward. That really is what's been happening in the last decade, two decades. And I think Ukraine further exposed that. Okay. So uh, we, we should probably lay out a couple of definitions here before we proceed mm -hmm. further into, into the analysis, because um, some people, when they speak of the global south, also include China, for example. Um, I want to hold China aside for just a moment and come back to uh, the role that uh, Beijing has to play here. But when you speak of the global south, uh, tell me a little bit more specifically how you define that. Well, actually, I wouldn't leave China out of this calculation. Let me tell you how I read it since um, the 24th of February. When when the invasion um, broke out, um, we started talking about the global south. It started with China and the position of China. Um, and then it quickly shifted towards India and the balancing act that India was playing vis-a-vis -vis continuing to trade with Russia, including on arms. And then it shifted to Africa, around about the time of the of the General Assembly last September, when President Macky Sall, at the time, the chairman of the Africa Union, speaking and warning against the Western capitals, making this a loyalty test between the West and the rest, and particularly Africa. And then, at the time that President Lula came into power, um, then we saw the narrative shifting towards or the labelling of certain countries, now Latin America, as Global South. And Lula um, was seen as an internationalist, so a lot of hope pinned um, that he would take a very front-leaning role um, on the question of the Global South or be sort of like the spokesperson championing um, what was going on or championing um, the sort of the Western support or the rest of the world support vis-a-vis um, 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 Ukraine and you saw both um, President Lula and his counterpart in, in Colombia say no, the same stays with us. We are not going to back um, or we're not going to sort of align ourselves with the West. We recognise that the invasion 
um, is 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 wrong, but we're not going to necessarily fall behind a Western position or a Russian position. So it's been interesting how this narrative of global South has moved from various geographies, from China to India, um, to Africa mm. and Latin America. Okay, so when we come back, I want to talk with you more about um, what you've written as the cognitive dissonance uh, that the West's attitudes toward the global South, however its uh, definition has changed over time, how that raises some cognitive dissonance amongst those very countries. So that's what we'll talk about when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com OnPoint today to get 10% off your first month. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today, Comfort Arrow joins us. She's president and CEO of the International Crisis Group. And we're talking about the so-called Global South's view of the war in Ukraine and what it tells us about the nature of Western and more specifically U.S. Uh, global influence today. Now, uh, Dr. Arrow, you've written extensively about various perspectives held by um, nations of the global south uh, when it comes to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, And you wrote something quite interesting. You said, my colleagues at International Crisis Group and I have argued that the West is right to offer Ukraine military backing. But we should be humble enough to understand why this approach creates a sense of cognitive dissonance outside the West. So tell me more about that. Um, yes, I think you're quoting from the article I wrote from mm-hmm. um, foreign policy. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean the rest. Um, if I remember, the rest of it is that some of them, the global South, feel that the West is demanding sort of their loyalty, like a loyalty test, um, over Ukraine, but not necessarily showing them solidarity in their sort of hour of need. And it was very much the the feeling that a number of countries um, had, you know, num- a number of countries, for example, um, when I would speak to people in the Gulf region, um, I remember when I was in Doha, um, the Doha Forum last um, March, and when Ukraine was compared to Aleppo, um, the, the audience reminded that, you know, we have our Aleppo, we have our own crisis, our own conflicts um, in this region. We have our own conflicts here in Africa. And the entire world um, is not being asked to back one side or the other in these different crises. 
Um, and so why are you demanding um, the same from us? We and Now, this should not be confused because I think one of the things I've made pretty clear um, in the conversations that I have had is that there is um, clear sympathy towards Ukraine. There is a recognition of the territorial aggression that has been caused mm. here. The principles are not up for grabs here. I think what has left a number of countries in the so-called Global South irritated and frustrated is a sense in which um, certain lives matter more than others. And I think that was what was also, I think, still frustrates um, a number of countries, non-Western countries. There's a sense that the lives of Europe matter more than the lives, say, of those who have been fighting for for countless um, years, either in Ethiopia or, or over the whole issue of Israel-Palestine or other conflicts that you can that you can name. Um, and that was very much what I was hearing um, in different quarters um, in the conversations that I was having, whether in Latin America, um, in Africa or, or across the Gulf region. Hmm. And when I played that um, clip from the uh, German uh, Federal Minister for Foreign Affairs a little earlier, and she said that neutrality is not an option because then you are standing on the side of aggression. How do you think that falls on um, the ears of leaders of the Global South? I mean, I think, again, um, let's, I mean, let's underline it. They're not, at least the global leaders I've spoken to in a number of these um, countries, non-Western countries, um, if, and even the people themselves are not, um, and it's a tragedy that this is happening in the name of Ukraine. They're not questioning um, the right of Ukraine um, sovereignty. I mean, why would countries themselves who have been colonized and who have benefited from a number of these principles, territorial integrity, sovereignty, and who have benefited from the UN Charter now usurp that charter? So that's one level of debate. At the same time, I think there is. I think it's also worth noting um, that you know a number of these countries themselves. I think there are different reasons why some of them have chosen to hedge. Some of them do have close relationships with Russia. Um, some of them have defence pacts with Russia, um, and they're very careful in their wording, um, both publicly and privately. I mean, some will tell, the, tell you that in private, look, it's a matter of our national security, but in, mm -hmm. and in public, we'll be very careful in how they say it. So there's recognition also of that. But I don't think um, that this necessarily suggests that all of them are not neutral. And I think it's worth underlining that the global South is not monolithic. I think they're different. Right countries in the in the global right as well mm -hmm. exactly which is why i mean i i don't know exactly i i can't tell you what goes behind goes on behind closed doors in diplomatic mm. meetings you definitely mm. know better than i do on that mm. so the you know the most insight that we have as the general public are these public statements and so that's mm. why i'm wondering you know if indeed the the west i.e you know western europe and the united states seek greater uh, diplomatic support, let's say, from these nations of the global south, does it do them, first, first of all, does it do them any good to use the kind of language that I just quoted? And B, what are they misunderstanding about 
um, the, uh, the, the approach and the needs of African nations or South American nations, because if they understood those needs better, how would, how would the German foreign minister or President Biden change their, uh, their messaging and approach to these countries? I mean, good question. <laughs> sometimes it feels as though it's a dialogue of, of the deaf, um, um, that sometimes Western leaders, in a sense, need to do a better job at listening um, and to recognise the concerns of a number of these non-Western countries as well. Um, I also think it's it's worth sort of recognising that it's, again, and I want to underline that it's, a, it's unfortunate that it's the the war or the invasion of Ukraine, in which these um, frustrations, um, this sort of irritation with the West has been negotiated or it's been dealt with. It's, it's, it's unfortunate that it's, it's happening on the altar of Ukraine's very difficult um, um, fight for its own survival. Yeah. Um, Dr. Errol, can I just, mm, just, can I just step in here for one second? And forgive mm, me for interrupting, mm, but you've, mm -hmm. you have rightly pointed out twice now that mm. no one wishes this happening b because of, you know, the, the deaths of, of thousands of people and the illegal invasion of, of a nation. I totally yeah. understand that. Uh, we, mm. we, this is not about Ukraine per se. Mm. Um, and the atrocities going on but the there. West has, but, but the West has, some have made it sound as though it's about Ukraine. Yeah. Well, exactly. So this is what I'm saying. It, I, I, I think the, the problem in itself is sort of laid bare even more starkly by the fact that you feel like you have to say that. Whereas, yeah. you know, we're, ta we're talking about nations of the West, particularly the United States, that went ahead and, you know, invaded Iraq, invaded Afghanistan, exactly. has supported mm. all sorts of, you know, through material um, and military and economic support, all sorts of bloody battles in different countries uh, in, in the global south. Uh, and we never really once in this country had honest conversations about, it's unfortunate that we're having these talks based on, you know, the deaths of a quarter million Iraqis. So it's that it's that kind of... Um, I keep using the word hypocrisy because I'm not sure what el what other word is appropriate here that, that is really rife in this whole discussion and it's hard to see past it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and, that's, and I think that's a challenge and it's the value that you place on one life over the other. I think the, the global tendency to sit the Ukraine war out reflects frustrations in much of the world at the way Western powers have exercised th their power over a few decades. I think the wars also revealed a sharp divergence between the way the West understands global politics and the lived experience of people in other parts of the world. I think also too often, even Western officials who recognise the previous mistakes, and you cite Ukraine, we can also cite Libya, for instance, also mm -hmm. brush off the injustice that a number of these regions feel. And I think we shouldn't, and I've said it um, in in another article, that we should be under no, under we should be under, um, we shouldn't be under any illusion about this double standards, you talk about hypocrisy and what it means when you start quoting the rules-based order. Because the immediate reaction you get is, whose rules are you talking about? Because the very rules that you're talking about are the ones that have been usurped um, during the time of, of Libya and during the time of Ukraine. At least that's the, that's the argument you get from the other side, from the non-Western um, Western countries. So I think this, this is what has been exposed in the last year, um, that a number of countries feel that they have to make these comments now um, and to outline 
their frustrations that we never heard strongly in the past and then is coming out more and more um, today. And, and I think a number, a few by the narrative prevalent in Western capitals, um, that the war is an ex existential global threat, um, not least more than, no more of a threat than the conflicts that they face at home, like climate change, for example, like food mm -hmm. scarcity, like debt, um, for example, or any other war. So many chafe at this notion um, that you, 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 you question um, their position, you, you question issues around neutrality, and a number of them say, well, where were you at our time of need? Um, we didn't see the same urgency, both at the humanitarian level, and we did not see the way in which you have innovatively used the Security Council and even the UN General Assembly to get everybody rallied around Ukraine. Now, I want to underline that I consider, and Crisis Group does consider, Ukraine to be an existential threat to global insecurity. We do see it as a matter of international peace and security, mm -hmm. the gravest threat um, probably since Iraq. But you do have this conundrum um, from a num that a number of non-Western countries have challenged um, the West and its own performance over the last um, three or four decades. Yes, yeah, point, point taken. So let me just, um, in a sense... Uh, argue a slightly different point of view here, and and I don't mean argue as in are being argumentative, but in the mm -hmm. in the in this in the uh, spirit of uh, informed debate here, um, because you know you're exactly right. The the international crisis group, and obviously including and also many other countries uh, around the world, see the Russian invasion of Ukraine um, as an existential threat. So that brings me back to the fact that surely. Um, and I think you said this, but surely many countries of the so-called global south also see it that way, um, not the least because of the, the food insecurity, right, that we started the hour on, um, given Ukraine's mm -hmm. importance um, uh, regarding grains globally. So I guess what I wanted to point that out again, because certainly from the beginning, from February of uh, last year, these same nations must have seen Russia's aggression as potentially having spillover effects on, you know, on their own countries, not directly through, um, you know, violence, but through uh, things like food. And if that's the case, why not speak out against Russia earlier? Um, I mean, that's a good that's a good question. And this is why I say that I think we should unpack what we mean by the global south. I mean, you look at the if you look at the votes um, that took place at the General Assembly, I mean, a narrative has been portrayed that somehow the global south spoke as one. Um, and if you look very closely, you know, a number of countries, for example, in Africa did abstain. So the same in Latin America. Um, but a, num a number of significant countries didn't abstain. <laughs> they voted in defense of, of the resolution um, last March, for example. And a number of, of them also voted when there was a, um, the referendum annexation um, vote at the General Assembly a few months later. I mean, my own sense is that there's a general disappointment um, with some... There's a general disappointment, for example... Um, with South Africa. So mm -hmm. when a number of the Western capitals talk about the continent, they say, oh, Africa has largely not 
Well, that's not true. And mm-hmm. I, my sense is that this is largely because a number of Western countries are disappointed, specifically with South Africa. Nigeria did not abstain. It voted in support of the resolutions. Ghana also. There are 54 countries on the continent. They all have different views. Only two supported the Russian vote, and they were, they were, they were the ones that we would have predicted in any case. Um, and then if you look closely at why these countries um, positioned themselves the way they did, they separated the suffering of Ukraine um, from the wider geopolitical calculations that they make. And they also say that if you accept the argument that I'm a sovereign nation, they, that will extend to my right to decide what my foreign policy and national security interests are. And you're, you'll remember in, earlier in our conversation, I said that a number of these countries hedging because of their own national security mm-hmm. concerns. And that requires some of them, rightly or wrongly, to sit out um, from their sit out outside of the taking aside in the in the um, Russia's invasion into Ukraine. Now you'll recall on the eve of, of Russia's invasion to Ukraine, the person who spoke out in defence of multilateralism was an African diplomat mm-hmm, at the mm-hmm. Security Council, the uh, the Kenyan permanent representative. So we shouldn't forget these, you know, this side of the story, as well. And yeah. as I said, um, a number of a number of countries, whether in Latin America or, or elsewhere, um, have been very careful um, in lending their voice, an important voice, to what's happened in Ukraine. But at the same time, much of their criticism, much of their agitation, much of their frustration is towards the West. Now, I will say one more thing that I think is worth bearing in mind um, to go back to your earlier question, that although the West sometimes has shown itself not to listen and not to, or to pay lip service to the concerns of a number of these countries, um, Ukraine, however, has been listening. Mm -hmm. It has been listening to the growing concerns and it does want to engage with the global South, and it has been doing so. So, for example, Foreign Minister um, um, Kuliba announced earlier this year, I think it was in May, that his country plans to scale up its own diplomacy in a number of global South countries, including Africa. And one of the plans is to open 10 to 12 embassies, and it's doing this to counter Russia. Mm-hmm. Well, Comfort Arrow joins us today. She's president and CEO of the International Crisis Group. And we're talking about what the West misunderstands about the so-called global South when it comes to the varying approaches uh, that nations outside of Europe and the United States have taken when it comes to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We'll have more in a moment. This is On Point. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. 
I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Dr. Comfort Arrow joins us today. She's CEO of the International Crisis Group. And, you know, Dr. Arrow, it still kind of stops me in my tracks repeatedly when um, countries in the so-called global south have to make it clear that part of their decision-making process or their approach to, uh, you know, any set of geopolitical tensions is grounded in needing to protect you know, the interests of their own citizens, as you mentioned a couple of times. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it it's disappointing that we're still at a place where, you know, nations like the United States always behave in, in a manner that would protect its own citizens and say so loudly and proudly, but somehow look upon other nations doing the same thing as uh, acts of disloyalty. It is disappointing. So I... Um, in terms of the West view of the so-called global South. I I wanted to state that because there also is the question of um, whether there there are things about Russia itself that some nations, again, not all, but some nations of the so-called global South um, actually find um, more appealing. And let me give you an example, one you know well, and this is from many, many decades ago, but Um, India at one time had um, very positive and closer relations with the then Soviet Union than it did with the United States because the United States had chosen instead to sort of have closer ties with with Pakistan. Um, Mm. And so I wonder, I mean, are there things now uh, about Russia, whether it, you know, be sort of the one of the last bastions of now I have to call it Putin-esque communism, or other things that Russia can provide that actually make some countries in the global south look more positively upon their relations with Russia? Um, yes, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. And we're talking at a time when, as you said up top, the Russia-Africa summit um, has just fi- finished. But and, and at the same time, you know, we've got this phenomena of Wagner... Um, providing mm-hmm. an alternative sort of security umbrella um, at a time where um, France has found itself on the back foot having to withdraw from Mali and Burkina, you know, and we've seen the way in which sort of Russia is stepping in with an old format of providing um, security defence um, agreements, um, providing military hardware to a number of countries um, that are vulnerable, that have been facing a period of conflict. So Central Africa Republic um, is one where Wagner, for example, continues to be an essential, provide an essential support to the to the regime there. Um, Mali, where the country has faced, you know, two coups um, in recent times and has become reliant again on on Russia, both in the form of of Wagner. So those, you know, those are two. Um, good examples, and you see that in terms of regime survival, um, you know Russia appears to provide an interesting value proposition. Doesn't ask any questions. Provides that short-term, immediate 
um, sort of security apparatus for weak and vulnerable countries. Um, what's interesting about Wagner is that it doesn't do it um, from some altruistic motive. Um, there are gold um, and other critical minerals that are leaving the country. Sort of you pay yourself as you go um, because the state can't afford to pay in any other way. Um, and it's a, it's a very short-term um, proposition. Um, no questions about human rights, no questions about democracy, no lecturing according to um, these countries. Um, Russia comes in and helps um, bolster us. But I should underline, it's very short term. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not sort of solid. It's not based on any, any, any strong foundation. Um, it is about regime survival, um, particularly in mm. the countries that I've mentioned uh, and, and previously, not that long ago, um, Sudan. Um, but again, we shouldn't overstate um, the relevance um, or the importance of Russia's footprint across the continent. I mean, a number of these countries, even the ones that I've, well, I'll set aside the ones that I've mentioned, but there are a number of countries that still look to the West um, as an important um, player, still have strong trading links um, with the West and still have strong political relationships and export relationships with the West and don't necessarily want to give that up. Um, but there are times when they are under significant pressure and where it's really about regime survival that you see um, a, number, a number of countries turn into other um, countries that may provide less scrutiny in the way that in the way that the West um, does. Mm. So you mentioned uh, not overstating Russia's footprint, but what mm -hmm. about China? China's footprint in these countries as well. I mean, like, could we could we uh, speculate here for a moment? What if China became more vocal uh, regarding its stance uh, in the, in the the Ukraine war? Would that would that change how some of these nations of the global South? Uh, feel about what they might be able to say or do on the global stage? Um, I mean, they're, they're, I'm not sure what you mean, but China, China and um, Brazil, for example, and South Africa, what binds these three countries is that they've all put down, in their own different ways, peace proposals. They've all put down some form of idea of negotiation and mediation. So they're all sort of skirting around the idea. And certainly, when you look across the um, look across sort of the number of countries that have, you know, been vocal um, in the last year or so, countries that you may want to define as middle powers. That's the other that's mm -hmm. the other label that's come out in the last year apart from <laughs> the global south. Um when you want to when you look at these activist middle powers, what binds them all is that in their different ways they've come up with ideas um for stopping um the war. Now you talked about um why there is frustration um visa the West. It's because some of these propositions haven't necessarily been taken seriously. Admittedly, the French one, the, the, um, the China one, is a list of principles as opposed to real sort of um, issues around negotiations and, me and mediation. But nonetheless, they've put down ideas um, to help think through um, mediation. And Zelensky himself hasn't turned his back against some of these. He looked with interest, for example, um, at 
at what China was offering. And I think none of us, or we, a number of us will recall that one of Ukraine's um, largest trading partners before uh, the, the invasion was China. So, you know, hence why that becomes an interesting um, relationship. But I think it's it's worth recognising that they're, they're all in their different ways, um, you know, hedging, wanting to see where things are going. China doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily like this messy um, conflict. You know, Putin promised him a quick win. If you remember, they both, mm-hmm. Xi Jinping and Putin, saw each other ahead of the um, the Chinese Olympics. And, you know, he gave him a sense that this will be a, a quick win. And China's looking at that and thinking, well, if this is how this is going, um, we also have our own contested issue in our neighbourhood, Taiwan. And I think there is, looking at that, looking at how the West um, has reacted um, to Russia and beginning to look at what that means for its own um, geopolitical um, environment and how things will will play out in in that region as well. So all these countries have reasons to to be concerned about the length of the war, but also to be concerned about know the future stability um, not just in Europe but elsewhere in the, in the world All right I guess when I mentioned China um, to be mm-hmm. more specific what I was thinking of is that China has made uh, massive investments in let's say you know many nations on the African continent mm-hmm. uh, and that preserving that relation that relationship I would guess is an important uh, consideration when it mm-hmm. comes to um, global diplomacy that those African nations might engage in so you know is it in their best interest again to to not want to cross China and come out it let's say it, it, with exclusive support for and, and vociferous support for Ukraine whereas as you said China's been a bit quiet and um, maybe disquieted as well by what's been happening does that make more sense yeah it's interesting that the way you phrased it um I mean when you look at I mean let's look at South Africa for example South Africa's mm-hmm. trade um, with Russia, I think is neg- neg- negligible. Um, with I think less than one percent of exports going to Russia, whereas South Africa's trade relationships with um, are dominated by China. I think China first, and then or maybe China and US are not too far apart, and then and then Europe as well. So they again they don't necessarily want to make it an either or. I think they want to be able to explore. And and see and have relationships with other countries and China, again um, has been an an important um, player on the continent. I mean, it is it is invested heavily um, on the continent. I think there are a number of countries that have concerns um, about China's interests. Again, it's not altruistic. Um, again, China's own sort of strategic reaching out to. To, to Africa is also part of an, an effort um, to make sure it builds up its own allies, alliances, um, and it sees um, what's happening um, in Ukraine um, as a way of giving some, the fact that a number of countries haven't allied um, with the West has given the West a bloody nose as well. So in the same way, mm-hmm. although it's been careful um, how it's positioned itself, um, it also sees um, that the West, to a certain degree, or assumes that the West, well, actually it doesn't assume that the West is distracted because it also has, um, you know, the US-China competition has heightened. And quite frankly, I think that overshadows um, international politics more 
than the more than um, Russia's invasion into Ukraine mm-hmm. and more than the US um, Russia standoff or the Western standoff that you see with Russia today. Hmm. So clearly, though, we still have a situation where um, nations of Western Europe and, you know, the United States and Canada, etc., um, would are, are still seeking support from uh, the countries of the global south that we've talked about today regarding their you know, how they view the Russian invasion of Ukraine. How concretely do you think um, the global south's view of the war in Ukraine actually uh, what's the concrete impact of of their views on this uh, war um, look I think it's worth um, noting that we, there's something we shouldn't overlook this I think the strength of the Western resolve um, mm-hmm. vis-a-vis um, what's happening in Ukraine but also the current state of international relations um, stems largely from the West's own security calculus that it's strategically important that there is a Ukrainian victory. Um, I think what is very clear is that while a number of Western countries recognize um, the frustration and have tried to speak to that frustration and have tried to put in place policies or commitments or made commitments um, to address that eye like the the food insecurity um, or Biden saying that the African Union should be part of the G20, for example, um, they're they're unlikely um, to be swayed by the pressure of the global south. And we said this recently, for example, ahead of the NATO um, conference in, in Vilnius, that much as the discontent um, in non-Western capitals may perturb Western leaders, um, the West security is more immediate, and that will always be the overriding priority. Um, for example, a number of US officials and even Western um, European um, officials um, speak very candidly about the need to separate or compartment compartmentalize these concerns um, that you're hearing from the global south from the need to ensure victory for Ukraine, for example. So they recognize that, but that's not going to distract them from what they need to do, which is to ensure that Ukraine lands well on the map and that it's in a position at, when it's appropriate to negotiate. So that they're not going to give up. Even though they recognize um, the frustration, even though they've paid lip service um, to to the global south sort of speaking out um, against um, the way in which the West has asked them all to back Ukraine, even though they're frustrated um, over things like um, the climate change, um, climate mm-hmm. financing, um, the whole sort of, for example, vaccine, um, lack of vaccine distribution. The West hears this, they pay lip service to it, they make grand commitments. You heard it at the G7. That's not going to change the way in which they view the immediacy, the threat in which Russia's invasion poses, not just to Europe, but to global, um, to, 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 to international relations going forward. And that, I think, is the conundrum that a number of non-Western countries um, face. Because we mm-hmm. really haven't seen any real sort of, um, any real outcome 
from all the various commitments that we've heard, whether it's in the G8 Assembly or the recent G7 or even the recent Paris um, summit that Macron, President Macron um, held um, a month or two ago. So that's that's the reality in which a number of global um, South countries are operating, that the fundamentals haven't changed despite the rhetoric and despite the lip service. Right. Well, we have oh, not even a minute left here, but I want to return to something you said earlier in your foreign policy piece, again, that was from March mm-hmm. of this year. You say mm-hmm. you said the, the global South isn't necessarily slipping away from the West, mm-hmm. but that, mm-hmm. as you've said several times today, there's a misunderstanding of what um, the motivations uh, and concerns are of the global South. So what's one thing you would suggest the West changes now, presuming they get a better understanding of... Uh, of the needs of the global south, what would you suggest they change? Well, <laughs> that's, a, that's I'm, a, that's I'm sorry, I'm giving you tw- I, 20, 20 seconds 20 to seconds. answer that. My, I, look, forgive I, me. I think, look, I think the West needs to meet the global south on its terms and understand that, that the need to address their concerns and their interests. And I think one crucial element is on debt relief to help stem um, the economic crisis brewing in several vulnerable countries in the global south. I think that's really important. A lot of lip service has been paid to to dealing with economic um, recovery, but we haven't seen any real sort of change. Um, and a big a big test is how willing they are, how willing advanced economies mm-hmm. are going to recognise the responsibility that they have um, yeah. in addressing um, the debt relief. Well, Comfort Arrow, President and CEO of the International Crisis Group, thank you so much for joining us. This is On Point.